welcome to the God is not an asshole podcast. If you are one of the many people done with religious dogmatism, hang on. You might sense transcendence, but your church or other faith community never seem to get off the ground. You realize that honoring your conscience means more than fitting in and keeping hard to explain rules? Hang on. You could probably think of the goodness in your tradition, and you tried your best to save that baby, but there's so much bathwater. Join your hosts, David Norman Moore Jr. in California and Carrie Connolly in New Jersey, who are collaborating to bring on guests who have found life on the other side of fundamentalism. Guests with stories of how they have liberated themselves from beliefs that divide us from each other. None of our guests' narratives are identical, but we hope you'll find something in common with each of them. We invite you to experience our common bond as we all inspire even more of us to embrace the true self. The um, the conversation around the Irish, the, the idea of the Irish being the indigenous people of, of Great Britain and having been colonized um, is is a really deep conversation that a lot of my white-bodied friends here who care about whiteness and the way um, whiteness is in operation here in the United States are, we're trying to go back to that. We're trying to get, we're trying to get back to that, our, our indigenous, um, practices and, and, and we're trying to recognize how much we've lost, you know, and still, still hold the, the, the paradox and the truth of our whiteness here in the American construct and how that's all in operation. So have you ever read the book by Noel Ignatiev called uh, how the Irish became white? Um, I have, I am familiar with the title. I've not read it, but I'm familiar with it. Well, I used that in my classes back. I, I just retired from teaching uh, in December. So, but um, I would use that in some of my classes uh, while back. I also mention it in my new book, Mission in the Cultural Other, my newest book. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I talk about that as an example, but uh, basically he, he says the, the Irish, you know, what was happening on the East Coast uh, in uh, Boston and New York and Philadelphia, et cetera, is that the when the Irish came in, basically they were put in the same place as black folks, right? Yep. And so in the same neighborhoods, same jobs, same lack of jobs, et cetera. And so they all begin to marry, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that's why you have, you know, so many black people from the East with names like McGee and things like that, you know, but uh, and so the the gentry are the people in power in those places, the white, you know, British and other 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 mm-hmm. kinds um, said, we've got to do something about this. And so basically what they did was they created a path for middle sort of middle class, middle management, if you will, for Irish mm-hmm. folks. And because yep. uh, they, they had to decide it's either going to be black people or it's going to be Irish people. Well, you know, you know, so they decided it's going to be Irish people. Right. Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so they, they created, you know, uh, places for them like aldermen, like, uh, mm-hmm. uh fire, firemen, you know, like policemen. Yep. And that's why you have yep. so many Irish cops and firemen, et cetera. Um, yep. Yeah. And they didn't and, expect you know, they were, to be like a mayor in Chicago or anything like that, you know, but uh, right, right. And they were, you know, they were allowed to be white, just not completely white right Right. and um especially as long as they remained catholic you know and kept their brogues kept the one thing that they they didn't get rid you can walk into an irish bar in the bronx which is where i grew up hanging out and uh our music is still there and it's beautiful and um and there's you know there's um there is still the truth i mean i remember this was back in the 80s early 90s when i was hanging out in the irish bars in the bronx but 
um, there was still a lot of truth to the realities of the troubles. And um, I remember one time literally standing there and some what was called British propaganda. And it was, I think it was about something having to do with the Guilford Four. I could be wrong. I, I, I don't remember. Um, came on the on the television and I had a, a bar stool smashed up against a wall right next to my head because <laughs> somebody got very, very angry about that propaganda. And um, yeah, it's, it's it's just a very, it's a fascinating story to me. And especially when I think about the the Irish Americans who are here um, and who are who have tried to distance themselves from their the brogues of their parents and from the 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 culture in a lot of ways. Um, and I also had an experience as as a, an Irish American that here in America, so many of us who are white bodied of European descent, we say like we have a uh, we say are you I grew up in a town that was mostly white you were either Irish or Italian. You would ask people, are you Irish or are you Italian? You know, meaning of Irish or Italian descent. And everybody knew what we were talking about. But if I talked to an Irish person, a person from Ireland, and I, call, I called myself Ireland, Irish, they would get insulted. They would get upset by that sometimes, yeah. right? And so it's this weird duality of this place that I could, I, I wanted so much to connect with my Irish heritage, and yet I wasn't always allowed to. And yep. yet I, in other ways I was. So it's just fascinating. It's a fascinating construct. Yeah. So the, the the project of assimilation is constant in America and to different peoples, it's different levels, right? Yes. So the, the only two peoples who, who just are not allowed entry at all are black people and native people. So um, we, we can't get in unless you're very like, like me, very light skinned uh, or, you know, someone who uh, talks the same language, has the same values, someone like a Clarence Thomas, for example. Um, and then you're allowed in most of the way, you know, so but, basically um, and, often, and, <laughs> yeah. and often so. used as a tool, often used as a tool for white, white pseudo supremacy, right? Used, oh, absolutely. Um, you know, there's nothing yeah, no. they like better than to have a black Republican, you know, it's like, exactly. So, so we should introduce you, Randy. In fact, I'm going to let you introduce yourself, but our connect, I want to say that our connection began in Oak View or Ojai, California, uh-huh. uh, with Chad, uh, Chad Myers and Elaine, um, Inns. Inns. Mm-hmm. some years ago at, uh, uh, you know, th- it was a conference ar- around indigeneity and Christianity. And that's where we first uh, connected. But then you have this book. It's not your most recent book, but I, I got this book and I couldn't believe that it, it's been out this long. It's been out, uh, a year and a half, and the title is Indigenous Theology and the Western Worldview, a Decolonized Approach to Christian Doctrine. And, uh, you know, the book has has lots of questions, and I have a question in a moment that's not really the, the focus of the book. But first, Randy, say something about yourself, where you're from. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm just a farmer. Um, <laughs> my, my wife and I farm... Uh, uh, Elahe Indigenous Center for Earth Justice and Elahe Farm and Seeds in uh, Yamhill, Oregon. That's about an hour southwest of Portland. Um, this is our third uh, rendition of Elahe. The first one was in Kentucky, and we were chased off uh, after spending four years there by a, a group of white nationalists with a machine gun. We lost everything. Mm-hmm. And then we were able to, I was able to get a 
a job as an adjunct professor out here uh, for a couple of years. Then I was hired full time. And, and then we were able to uh, buy a second hundred year old uh, house and three acres and make it a farm. And, and then uh, eventually, um, you know, I gained, uh, you know, the distinguished professorship and tenure. And I retired as emeritus faculty after 15 years and climbed that academic mountain. Um, and, uh, and now I'm back to doing what I wanted to do all along, which is, uh, teaching out here. We're, we're farming and we're teaching and we have schools and yeah. So, um, all that I'm, you know, I've got, uh, four grown kids. Uh, I've got uh, six grandkids. Um, my wife and I have been partners for 33 and a half years now. And, uh, yeah, I, I like to write them. Of late, I've been writing movie scripts, and uh, I've got some great movies coming up. If someone can pick them up, then, you know, I'll be real happy about that. Then they all have to do with, you know, uh, disenfranchised people and, um, you know, justice and things like that. So, ah, um, Well, uh, you know, we want to talk about indigenous theology and the Western worldview, but you were just talking about how... Um, how the Irish and black folks, you know, lived together on the East Coast and, you know, how some black folks got their Irish names. And, you know, I will have to find out, get more answers. But I just want to say that, you know, my my wife's maiden name is McLucas. And I have no idea, what, you know, uh really the origin of that, you know, I have theories, but I just don't know. So we will have to research that. Anyway, that's another thing. Um, okay. So yeah, I that, just... that same strategy though, is divide and conquer, right? I mean, the, when uh, in uh, Noel Ignatius book, uh, how the Irish became white, you know, basically what, what you see is that it's like um, there's whiteness is the high standard in this country, right? And the British whiteness would be the first and maybe Scottish and German and some of those afterwards, but, but basically, um, Irish was not, you know, near the top of the list. And, uh, and so, um, and, and, and my friend was right. Yeah. The, the Irish were treated like native people were treated in, uh, under British rule. So, uh, yeah. And that divide and conquer strategy is still being used today. It works. And, you know, and this is, you know, divide the Irish people from the black people, you know, make them enemies create a path through the Irish to come up and become firemen, you know, policemen, aldermen, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, and then they'll just be for themselves, you know, and that's, that's the project of America. That's the, uh, that is uh, uh, sort of part of that whole myth of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's, you know, there's a path to do that um, if you're willing to sacrifice who you are. Mm-hmm. I think well, it's really important to recognize and acknowledge the fact that, you know, um, that while yes, I, because here, this is what I hear from a lot of my, my white friends when we are having conversation, my Irish friends, when we're having conversations about racism and, um, anti-blackness and all of that, um, is that I will hear my Irish friends say things like, well, the Irish were slaves too. No, they weren't, you know, we were indigenous, we were, um, indentured servants, which is a very different thing. And yes, we had, um, we, we did, have stores that said or restaurants that said no no irish no dogs yes we had we experienced all of that and also 
we were able to assimilate into the hierarchy of whiteness very easily, to your point, by sacrificing parts of our culture and were. But I think it's really important. And, and, you know, when it comes to the names, you know, how many of those names were because of intermarriage and how many of those names were because of slave ownership, right? right. Um, and so uh, we have to be willing to look at the whole picture uh, of, of who we became in the experiment of America, you know, and how we lost. And, and I also often wonder, as we move on this moral arc um, toward justice, which indicates movement, I often wonder, is there going to be space for white people, especially of Irish heritage, to explore that indigenous heritage? Um, I don't know. It's a question that I, I struggle with. Okay, so you mentioned uh, the the division, the uh, you know the intentional uh, pitting of peoples against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of leads into the question I was going to ask you. I, two weeks ago, I was at the uh, Parliament of the World Religions in Chicago, and one of the breakout sessions was on reparations. Uh, there were three panelists. Uh, one was indigenous. Uh, one I can't remember, and the other one was uh, an African-American pastor by, uh, by the name of Michael Neighbors, from Evanston, Illinois, which has actually... Uh, That's Ku Klux Klan territory. Yes, exactly. But in the midst of this, the city, and what's, what was fascinating to me is that they started this, this effort through the churches, black churches and white churches. But they have, uh, they've begun a reparations initiative. And they've already distributed $25,000 to each uh, African-American um, resident of Evanston. And they've uh, created a fund uh, where they now have a, a million dollars that they're, they're working out how they're going to, what, you know, how they're going to apply this. And their goal, these churches that have come together, their goal is to make their city the, uh, the first, <laughs> Racism-free church in the United States. You know, it's a pretty lofty ideal. But anyway, during the open mic session, and this is not the only session, I, I raised this question again when we were in the Standing Rock Forum. But I just, I'm just really gripped by this idea of us being intentionally divided. And I, I want to, I want us to think about a framework where People groups who are, who, whose objectives seem to be very different. And that is African Americans have always, not always, but generally sought to redeem the constitutional state, have, you know, kept pressing for justice within the system. And, and, and along with that, the call for reparations, not universally, but, you know, a, a lot of people are calling for reparations. Whereas, Indigenous people in this country, they're less concerned about the constitutional state. They're concerned about broken treaties. And so because the objectives seem to be so very different, it raises a question because ultimately the goal in all of this is decolonization. And I don't know what that framework would look like for, you know, know, African-Americans were so-called promised 40 acres and a mule 
after the uh, end of the Civil War. But, you know, the truth is, is even if that would have happened, it was stolen land. So that's, that's right. not, you know, it's not. Come, heard, uh, it's What's that? I heard Spike Lee on the news uh, a couple weeks ago. And he said, you know, we were promised 40 acres and a mule. But where do you think them 40 acres came from? You know? There you have it. Yeah. <laughs> So how do we think about, how do we have a framework where we move in solidarity? Can that yeah. even happen in a capitalist society? I don't know. That's the thing. So the problem is, is that, you know, do, I think being part of the system and equality is a good first step, but that has to just be the first step. I, I used to teach a class called Transformation, uh, Transformation, in systems and cultures. And um, basically the, the philosophy that I taught and believe is that, uh, you know, if you have uh, two parents, you're only going to get children with those two DNAs. And so, and until you introduce a new parent, you can't get a different DNA. Well, people who have been marginalized and disenfranchised have to actually be, be in seats of power and not just add to the system, but then begin to change the system. Um, we need to recreate a new system. The system that we have was built for white people. It's always going to be that way. And it, as long as those are the people who are uh, part of the conversation and in charge, they're always going to be end up, you know, it's going to be the same DNA eventually. So you have to change the whole system and the structure. And so, you know, equality and getting a seat at the table is the first step. But it's, it has to just be a first step. Yeah. What's next? What comes next, though? Because we're that's where the, I think the failure of imagination the is. Well, there has to be a, a series of things like um, there has to be education, uh, free, ed, freely uh, given education, not education that's, you know, where they ban the books and things like this. Um, there has to be uh, a public confession, if you will, or we could call it uh, a lamenting process and speaking truth to power and admitting what's gone on. There has to be uh, people from the other side of the equation who are guiding the process. So it's really hard for Americans to be junior partners, but in this kind of a reconciliation, they have to be junior partners. And then finally, uh, not finally, but uh, there has to be reconciliation. But before that step, there has to be reparations. So the idea is always like, well, let's just be friends. And then the reparations never come, right? So, no, let's have reparations and then be friends. Because why? Because that's what white folks need in order to save themselves, in order to heal themselves. Oh, what they do they need? need? They need to give reparations. So it's not as much for, for people of color as it is for themselves to be healed, right? Yeah. Then there can be friendships and, and then there can be lasting monuments, uh, histories written, et cetera, et cetera, so that we can say, oh, now we're ready to start something new. Mm -hmm. well, you, you, who, who should be leading white healing? Who should be leading what? Who should be leading white healing? What does um, white healing look like for, from your perspective? Yeah, the, the, well, it has to be uh, people of color, and it has mm -hmm. to, I think mostly it has to be black people and Native Americans. Because, you know, everybody is, you know, I don't want to do the oppression Olympics, but we actually were the sort of originals uh, who were wronged and still not recognized as human beings. So, well the, well, the white nationalist mentality, as you know, we've all encountered, 
is that even having a conversation like this is dividing us. It is right. you yeah. know, to, already to talk divided. About, That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. We we're already divided, but I don't understand this mentality that to even talk about justice and talk about reparations and and land back is dividing us. Where does well, that come from? There's no understanding that. And that's just, you know, sort of bringing out the that, that old American spirit that, you know, was there for genocide and enslavement and everything else. That's just working that back up, right? So there's no understanding that kind of mentality. There just have to be, has to be a, uh, a sort of a, a grassroots movement who won't stand for that kind of mentality anymore. It, sound, it sounds perhaps like, what what they're feeling is divisive is actually um, an attempt to silence their own conscience or keep their conscience from being activated, and so you know just 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 be quiet and 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 get along. So now, this is why I, as a a person who does t- teaches and leads in this in this vein, it, uh, working with white people, white bodied people like myself. I do believe that we need white leaders who are under the tutelage and mentorship and learning uh, from Bill Puck communities um, and indigenous communities because we, we th- th- this deconstruction of our own psyche and our identity is um, a really, it's a difficult process and one that is we want to defend against, we want to resist, you know what I mean? And I think it's really important that there are white people who have, are, I think it's an ongoing process of becoming, but who are going through this process of deconstructing our identity. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. yeah, Because, because it's a painful process to realize, oh crap, I have been a part of something that disgusts me. And I think to get to your earlier question, yeah, you do need white people saying to other white people, aren't you tired of carrying this load? Now, aren't you tired yes. of carrying this burden, this baggage of superiority and everything? Don't you want to be free? Don't you want to be healed? Yes. Well, here's the path to healing. Right? Yes, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And thankfully, but white people don't like people white exist. people to do that, yeah. right? But 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 the thing is, is that white people don't like white people who are doing that, right? So yeah. there's there's well, that. That news for you: they don't like native people or black Any, people or anybody right. else who does that either. <laughs> right, and there's a, a, there's a um, I think that there is a uh, a very a specificity to each of those experiences, right? And um, there's a specificity to to uh, when when white people are doing it. And I say this because I I hear so many of the people that I work with come to me and they go like, I don't know if I can how to do this. I don't know how to lose my family or lose my friends over this. I don't know how to do it. And yeah. um and I think. That's one of those those key things that's going to have to be addressed in in whiteness if we're going to do this work. And I've lost family. I've lost friends. I've lost jobs. I've been shot mm-hmm. at. I've been threatened. I'd have my family threatened. You know, yeah. uh, we've lost our home. Uh, you know, yeah. So, there's a cost. Yeah, it costs something. This is like yep. if you want to do it, it costs you something. You know, hundred percent. Yeah. So so Randy, I was. You know, I mentioned how this this uh, experiment in Evanston is underway, and uh, and it's church led. I want to raise a question, uh, a line of inquiry that's in um, the book that we we mentioned, and and that is how can we help students 
and help people in churches to open up to a different worldview? Do we have to have experience, provide experiences? Can it be done through thought exercises? What do you say to that? Yes. All that and more. Uh, you know, I, I write children's books to that effect. I write regular fiction books to that. Now I'm writing nonfiction screenplays to that effect. Um, I'm using, I write songs to that effect. I'm using every vehicle I have. And, um, you know, my, my, Indigenous theology in the Western worldview. You said you you didn't realize it been out for uh, was it been uh, it came out uh, last uh, July I think so it's been out a little over a year um, but the was given in 2022 it was one of the top ten books by the Academy of Parish Clergy so I didn't I, I knew it was selling well and I was like why you know <laughs> it's just me talking and then we put it into book form and uh, it was a series of lectures up in the at the Hayward Lectures in um, Nova Scotia. And, uh, and yeah, so there's something that, that people are, and I'm seeing people post about it all the time. Um, I actually thought my other book, you know, the second, I, I did three books in 2022. One was Becoming Rooted, which is a more or less a, a uh, meditational book. And you take a little, there's just a little short chapter every day. And uh, think about how to reconnect with the land, nature. Um, and then I did that one, and then I did one called Mission the Culture Other. And I thought, well, Mission the Culture Other is really a lot more radical. And uh, so I'm writing from a real place of experience. But the other one uh, seems to be doing really well. And uh, and I'm getting people posting all the time and saying I've been really challenged to, you know, to change my worldview. So I think we're just giving people tools to think about it, you know, um, and to realize, you know, once and once you start that, you know, decolonizing process. You start, you know, unraveling, uh, you know, uh, the, the ball of yarn or whatever, and and that just it just keeps going because you start seeing it everywhere. So everybody says, "Well, it's really hard to decolonize." Well, you know, not if you just jump in and it, and then your whole, you know, the problem is everybody's afraid to pull those, you know, those sacred cows. They don't want to, you know, they're afraid they're going to, like, you know, lift up a rock for Christians. They're going to lift up a rock, and God's not going to be there or something, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, and that's, that's a sort of a, a mealy kind of a faith anyway. So we need to strengthen our faith and buckle up and just dig in. Thank you so much for being here today. We are people who have left behind performance-based religion and the shame that comes with it. Maybe you have a personal liberation story to tell, and we want to know about it. Please contact us on Twitter at God is not an asshole or text 805-703-8393 because the world needs to know that God is not an asshole.